0: Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, the man on the best coast, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, the man I left behind, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker?
1: Always good, Mark. How are you this week?
0: I'm well, thanks. How's Kingston?
1: Kingston is fabulous. We have this crazy, cool weather. You would almost think that global warming isn't about to kill us all.
0: Aside from the fact that tornadoes were ripping through Ottawa and Barrie, Ontario... And <laughs> S- slightly blustery, just just a, just a touch, just a scotch. Uh, meanwhile, we have advisories here for thick layers of smoke and ash. So all is well in Canada. Anyway, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game. And I'm excited to talk about this. I have many words in many fields. Tribune by Carl Heinz Schmiel. So let's get started. Walker, what did you play last week? Mark. Uh, We've been playing a lot of Praga, and this sort of like dovetails
1: into Coffee Traders because there's both sort of these games that bring a lot to the table. Coffee Traders is this new game that just came out by designer Rolf Schegel and Andre Spiel. It's put out by Capstone Games, and it's this massive, sprawling, I'm going to take up the entire table and look very complicated and scare you, but not be too, too bad. Oh, good. So what you're doing in Coffee Traders is that you're You're developing these uh, cooperatives, all these different fields, and it's sort of under the guise that, you know, it's going to be producing coffee, and you think that you're going to get this coffee, but you are not. (laughs) You are going to get it, but it's like sort of a a different, you know, you send some traders in, and then they trade with everybody else. You don't even have to build up a, a, a plantation, and you can go in there and buy coffee. So it's middleman the game? Yeah, well no, well you you do have to build them up, but it it comes later at the very end of the game every Cooperative is sort of rated, and if you've built it up the most, then you get the biggest payoff at the end for a particular cooperative. So it's sort of like you know abstracted away in a, in a bit. So you know you sort of have to explain to people that you're not going to get the payoff of making these great fields. It's not as though it's going to give you the instant benefit of coffee. You still have to send your traders in and and do their business, and then you get coffee, and then you start fulfilling contracts. And you start sending coffee out to coffee houses, and you and you uh, can build warehouses. Is they have this cool warehouse system where you can either start building down the side so that all of your, uh, cause there's like six, five or six different types of coffee. So they all can store more or you can put them along the top. So you can store more of just that one particular coffee. Mm. So slowly one by one or instantly 10 of one. So that's, that's an interesting system as well. And they've got the, you know, the, the cats that poop coffee beans, because that's what everyone's favorite coffee oh, is. Yeah. It's it's in there. That's the, that's the wild coffee bean, so you can use it for anything, so that's why it's so coveted. And in all, it's, it's great. It, it taught well. It's very interesting. It's very, like I said, it's very daunting when you see it on the table, but this is just literally 2% that I've told you of the game, so there's a lot going on. I'll, I'll definitely be playing a lot more, so I'll get back to you with a little bit more. Do you enjoy it, Walker? I enjoy it a lot, Mark. Much like Praga, that it's got all sorts of benefits that slowly trickle in so you know you can slowly build these combos up and you can do several things in this one turn you know you're going to get these resources that will you pay off later in the turn and and do even more and it's a little bit like scythe where your player boards and the boards themselves are so well designed because everything is on there even though the rule book is awful because <laughs> it, it like completely omits rules and does a terrible Ooh. job explaining others Everything is on those boards, every bonus, every benefit, every part of the game. So if you once you learn learn what all the iconography means, then you're not going to miss anything because they did a great job on the boards themselves. And I think for the price, I think they really should have done a better job on the rule book.
0: It is a very expensive game. I mean it's it's like in splatter territory, basically.
1: It is. There's tons of wooden components and lots going on and nice plastic. Little beans and trucks and donkeys and...
0: Do you have little cat figures that actually poop out beans?
1: They don't poop the beans, but you do have cat figures, and they do go on the board.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll settle for that.
1: And that is Coffee Traders. I brought up with Prague just because of the same sort of... You know, it's got all of these sub-mechanisms. Praga is fantastic because it's got this great action selection, right, where you're taking these tiles, picking one of the two action, and then it goes back in this, like, rotating wheel, and then you're, like, comboing all these different things, upgrading your actions. So many different paths to victory in Praga. Like, I've played it, because it's on uh, Yakata now, mm-hmm. I've, I've played it, like, four different ways, like, four different paths to victory like you know go heavy up the cathedral or go into heavy building the buildings or grabbing the tokens because you know you're going left to right on the cathedral and the wall as well and the more you go left or right on the walls the more these particular tokens are worth so you go heavy on collecting all these tokens all these different ways makes the game super interesting i can't wait to play more of praga Kaput Rigney and he that's designed by Vladimir Suchi the same guy that does Underwater Cities that's another fantastic game and it's published by Delicious Games and like I said it's on Yakata so check it out
0: so Walker should I talk about my first game based on a conceptual link or should I just rush to the part where I taunt you some more
1: just taunt me some more Marcus Kabuto Sumo
0: Walker there, Kabuto Sumo. more Kabuto oh. Sumo now
1: yeah well mine's coming up soon Oh, oh, yeah. I'll be able to watch your slow tears drip down your face. So yeah, you're going to get turn your revenge
0: right ahead. quick. I know exactly what you're talking about. Good point. I should have been a little less enthusiastic in my taunting. So I commented last week that we played Kabuto Sumo a whole bunch and that I had some serious misgivings about the three-player game. I played Kabuto Sumo three-player. It was as degenerate as I thought it was going to be. It really is A, pushes for victory, which sets up B or C to actually win. And the person who initially did the, the, the threatening doesn't really benefit. Now, in part because you're never really sure how the discs are going to go, this is a shoving game where you slide discs onto a board and other discs start to slide around. And it, it really is a skill to help determine where things are going to break. You might think you've got a straight line to push something straight off, but no, it buckles to the left or to the right leading to a new tactical situation you hadn't anticipated. So, uh, you know, there's a surprisingly high skill threshold for this kind of dexterity, or even visualization. It's not even so much the dexterity, it's the visualization of spatial objects about how they're going to end up as a result of this. And with three players, it was by far the worst experience, but I couldn't care, because... You had these delightful sumo wrestler bugs, you had the lovely custom pieces, you had the delightful little moments of, oh, I wasn't expecting it to break that way, ah, ha, ha! So, you know, as, as a competitive experience, not very highly regarded. As the fact that it's still a cute, charming, very quick, very accessible, extremely engaging, endearing game, Kabuto Sumo is still a winner. So would I play it with three? Sure. Still not the best. So that was my further experience with Kabuto Sumo, which again is a review copy from BoardGameCables.com. It has not even begun to wear out its welcome, and I've played it well over a dozen times now. It's a delightful, quick, small box game, very affordable. Uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough for people who are interested in this kind of thing. And it's got a bug model after Ric Flair the Nature Bu- the Nature Boy, so what else could you possibly want? And that is Kabuto Sumo. How can you go wrong? Let let me set the stage for you, Mark. The seas (laughs) are
1: calm, but littered with treasure. There's floating cargo everywhere. There's riches to be made. Unfortunately, there's just one small problem. There's a (laughs) giant octopus that is guarding the treasure, and then he's accidentally knocked your captain off the deck of your ship. I'm sure it's just a misunderstanding. (laughs) All will be friends soon. So in, in Crash Octopus, you're sort of twizzling this toothpick between your fingers that has a a flag on it and this is what you're using to flick the treasure towards your ship and if it hits your ship then you can load it onto your ship and the object of the game is to get five different unique treasures but there's some small rules you can't flick the treasure that's closest to your ship and you can move your ship around and uh every time someone actually picks up a treasure then it clicks the timer down It's this interesting, like, rope that goes around the whole board. And on this rope are some beads. So, as you click the beads, every so often you'll hit a black one. And when the black one hits, it means the octopus has grown irritated and has had enough of you stealing all of his treasure and you get to sort of start bouncing this die off the octopus head and trying to knock the treasure off the other people's ships. And sometimes uh it will come up with a pink which means you get to move the octopus closer to their ship or it'll come up blank which means you can move a tentacle closer to the ship. And I wish the tentacles did a little bit more but it looks as though they're just more of a blocking thing. So if you don't actually hit the ship, you can sort of put this giant tentacle in front of it and therefore, you know, it'll be harder for them to you know hit with the treasures all in all it was a fantastic game we only got to play it once two-player but we're looking forward to getting it with a big group of players and it should be super interesting because it's got all sorts of these add-ons like this big island that you can put out that gets loaded up with treasure or the pirate ship that you know coasts along can't wait to play more crash octopus how's the table presence oh it's amazing like i thought like I had no idea, like it comes in this little box. So you think, oh, it's like, oh, it's going to be these, these tentacles are gigantic. It fills the whole table up. The ships, Mark, the ships, I can't even show you cause the screen won't, the ships are <laughs> huge. Like I just thought they were going to be just like sort of, you know, like board game meeple ships, you know, like you'd see sure. like Imperial or whatever, but it's about 10 times the size of that. It's a good two inches across. Oh wow. Everyone's ship. Yeah. They're huge. Anyway, that's designed by Nakota Shimamoto and put out by Itten Games.
0: Oh, I can't wait to try it! It's so good. Played another game of Pan Am. This is by Prospero Hall. This is a vaguely economic-y type thing. And I have to say I was a little bit disappointed because one of the things that Pan Am promises as an economic game is sort of a trade-off between routes you have to build up your income and routes you expect to get gobbled up by Pan Am, which provides you an immediate influx of cash. Again, it's this kind of dynamic that's present in Acquire, where mostly you want to have shares in companies bought out by other companies so you can get the, the immediate payout and use that to buy more shares. But the uh, I, I fear that the balance, after having played a few times, might be a little bit too much in favor of the short-term payout, which basically means there's no real trade-off. There's no notion of, well, I need this route to keep afloat, but I'll build these other routes and expect to get gobbled up. You're basically just that, that Silicon Valley startup whose exclusive desire is to be bought out by Google. That's all you want to do. You don't care about building anything else out. And that's fine, and that's okay. It's just a little bit less interesting than possibly being pulled in several different directions economically, which is all all things being equal, subject to some interesting decisions in some alternate uh, economic management games. I played Pan Am this time with two... And the game doesn't do much to scale, but it nonetheless scales very well. It's a worker placement game, and the only salient change when you're playing with two as opposed to four is you have more workers with two. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a very simple, straightforward affair. You're getting planes, you're getting the means to make routes, you're claiming routes. That's fundamentally what's going on. My concerns expressed last week definitely reared their heads again. The end game events can have a very consequential effect on victory. Some of the random cards have a... Some consequential effect on victory, verging all the way from very useful to ultimately borderline useless. So, in other words, kind of the lack of polish and refinement from a Euro game that you might expect from a publisher like Prospero Hall. I really like their output, but I don't necessarily expect their stuff to be super refined and balanced on a knife's edge, which is what you kind of like for these kinds of things. So, Pan Am is definitely enjoyable, and it's probably got another couple of plays worth in it for me, speaking personally. And as far as visual appeal and economic factors go, it's definitely got a lot going for it. But the promise of being pulled in multiple directions hasn't manifested itself. And so ultimately, I'd have to put Pan Am in the enjoyable but not necessarily great category. And that's my subsequent experiences with Pan Am by Prospero Hall.
1: Mark, I got to play Terraforming Mars Ares Project. And I can't wait for you to try this because I think it boils down everything we hate, like hate and loathe about terraforming mars and you can it and and puts it out on the table so what this does is takes away all the interesting bits like the actual terraforming of mars the actual you know any player interaction that there was no we're going to pull that out too and it just boils everything down to can you combo up better than everybody else and you're putting out all of these cards and you're doing it via you know uh, race for the galaxy style where everyone picks an action and only those actions will go off and whoever picked that action will get a bonus. And then you start, you know, working your engine and heads down and you look over and say, how did you just get 50 money? It's like, (laughs) okay, well, I I don't really care. And you just try to get your TR rating up faster than everybody else. And you can't really tell your TR rating is because they, you know, they have these great boards that are, you know, double layered and everything else. As long as you don't get the target version, I wouldn't even want to imagine what it would be like with the target version. And, but the score marker is so small and they've only like put numbers on every 10. So you're trying to figure out where your money thing is and someone's bumped it. So you're not sure if it's there or not. And (laughs) Who knows, Mark, who knows? But, uh, it was very interesting, experience i wouldn't mind (laughs) playing it a couple more times just to sort of get the feel this is designed by sydney engelstein jacob fercellius and nick little and this is put out by stronghold and fricks games and uh it was it was something
0: You know, from the beginning, when talking about Terraforming Mars, I frequently asked rhetorically, why would anyone want to play this kind of Tableau Builder when instead they could play Race for the Galaxy? And clearly, someone had the same idea when they're like, wait, what if we just rip off Race for the Galaxy and graft on an unsatisfying simulacrum of the card play onto Race for the Galaxy's action selection mechanism? Maybe that'll work. Good job, guys. No, I don't want to review a game I haven't played. Far be it for me to do such a thing, but... uh Having read the rules, I had no desire to try the thing, and maybe someday you'll subject me to it, and I'll resent you all the more for it. I played some more games of Imperium the Contention. I actually tracked down a copy of the deluxe version. The only difference between the deluxe version of Imperium the Contention and the normal version of Imperium the Contention is, number one, a small number of ship minis, which quite frankly are entirely superfluous, and I'm not even sure I'm going to use them, because they're nice, but... They don't have stats on them, and the little card tokens they replace have the stats on them. And number two, a solo campaign. And I was very curious about the solo campaign, in part because I've moved out west and I don't have any friends over here, which is why Walker sent me here. And I have to say that the solo version of Imperium of Contention, very much like the core game itself, is surprisingly good and satisfying. Because what you do in order to run the AI, as it were is every scenario you're facing a specific opponent and you build a quick deck. It's usually only about eight-ish cards. Sometimes a card is stipulated to be on the top. Sometimes a card is stipulated to be on the bottom. And all the AI does is just plays the top card of their deck. And that could be a ship or an action or a tech or something. And the ships just go and kill the biggest thing they can kill. And that's more or less it. That's more or less the solo rules. And so obviously then the question is, how well do they balance... The economy, quote unquote, of the AI faction, namely how big are the guns they put out at what rate in comparison to what you're able to do. Because you as a player character have to pay for things like a schmuck. The AI just gets to have things show up. And the answer is so far, having played two different scenarios against two different adversaries, they've done a really good job. Gary Doretsky, the designer of Imperium of Contention, really seems to know what he's doing, despite being a designer at the very beginning of his career, because I definitely got the sense that the scenarios were very well calibrated. I felt like I was under threat. But it still felt kind of sort of like the multiplayer game in that I was constantly feeling uh, threats come at me and I felt the pressure. But it didn't feel completely alien, no pun intended to the multiplayer game, whereby the units behaved radically differently and or the quantity or nature of the threat was radically different. So I felt like I ended up feeling like uh, playing like some kind of puzzle. Lots of solo games of vaguely conflicting multiplayer games like this when they do the solo version, end up turning it into some sort of weird puzzle thing where you have to do the damage in the right order or you're going to get overwhelmed by this tidal wave of nonsense. I did not get that impression from the contention. And the faction differentiation still gets to work because you get to stuff the AI deck with a tailored set of cards that come out roughly in the order you want them to. So I've come away very, very impressed. We're talking about very quick games, 20 minutes-ish total, win-lose-or-draw from each solo game. Which is uh, faster than the, the multiplayer version, but a two player game of Imperium: The Contention is still pretty quick as it is. And I'm looking forward to going through the rest of the campaign. The story is whatever. You know, the story is standard sort of. Uh, you know, you want to be the Galactic Emperor, blah blah blah. There's a mystery somewhere. Or maybe the Maybe the previous emperor is dead. Maybe they're just missing. And oh look, there's another race that doesn't want you to be emperor. Go stomp them into space dust. You know the general drill.
1: We've heard it all before.
0: We have heard it all before, Walker, many, many times. And we're going to hear it several more times, probably even this year. But I've been enjoying the solo mechanisms. It's quick. It's easy to resolve. I don't have to spend a lot of mental effort considering how the AI is going to behave. Instead, my mental effort is looking at my cards and saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to buy? How am I going to use it? Do I want to kill this? colony, do I want to defend this colony instead do I want to take over this thing, in other words the same kind of decision making that you would use in a multiplayer game, so I'm probably going to continue the campaign and so probably more to follow but I have to say, like everything else in Imperium the Contention, the solo mode continues to delight. Lastly
1: for me Merck, I got to play a game called Shelfy Stacker so, so Sorry, what? Kick sh- shelfy Stacker
0: Sorry, I'm, I'm going to have to, did I just have a fugue state? I think I heard you say that you I, played a game called Shelfy Stacker I, I think I, I get
1: halfway through it, and then I see your one eye twitching like you're yep. having a small stroke or yep. something. And then I think you get the end cut out. Okay. So, so this was a Kickstarter, which emulates board gamers stacking their shelves in you know in a Calx system. And
0: you gave them money for this?
1: It was not me. Okay. This was this is worm this is Worm Boys. He's got he got Terraforming Mars, Ares Project, and he got Shelfie Stacker. So I got him over to show me these new games. And what Shelfie Stacker is is they take they've taken these three games they've taken Libertalia, uh, Sagrada, and Azul and and pried them all together into this game where your uh, Libertalia style you have like a hand of about you know ten to fifteen cards they're all numbered and you're playing them out as initiative and they all have a, they also have a special ability so you get to Azul style pick a clump of dice that you want depending on your initiative and then you bring it over and you start either putting it on your shelf of shame or in your calyx and has to go from, uh, from low to high and they're all different colors. So you have like five different colors and so you have to make sure they all stack properly and, uh, you can throw them on the shelf of shame if you don't want them in your main shelf. And then you have all these different objectives that you have like certain, Uh, colored number dice that you have to have or certain shapes or if they're all random that you draw up the front so you have some missions to do some personal missions to do and then all of these special abilities and all your initiative cards that you can use at any time once you have them out i thought that was a little bit of interesting play it's like oh okay now i can Oh, this dice is awful. I'm just going to re-roll it using this card, and I realized, no, I can't. That's in my hand. I have to use it as an initiative card and get it out there first. Uh, it did sort of break down what I thought it was going to, where most of the cards weren't used until like the final couple rounds, where you get that those dice that you know you just can't use. And you, there was some very interesting combos where you know it said you know you pull a die off your shelf momentarily and then slide some other dice in and bring this back, or. Re-roll some, and you know, manipulate them around in interesting ways, like cool combos using multiples of the cards at once. So it wasn't a terrible game. It was an it was it's a nice little sort of dice placement puzzle game.
0: It sounds like it's a satire of board game collecting.
1: It totally... one hundred percent. You should see the art the art on these cards. They've made very silly little names, like you know, like crushing Mars, or you know, you know, they have little parodies of all all different sorts of board games on the cards and the dice, you know, instead of having pips on them, they have like sort of like, uh, you know, they're like, like a bookcase, but board games, like they're all Ah. sort of stacked book games, but like one, two, three, four, five, six type shapes. Mm -hmm. And you get to put them on and it's like a Calyx, you know, square system that you're, you know, putting them into. It was very interesting and, and silly game. I didn't mind it whatsoever. This is designed by Shem Phillips and put out by Arcus games.
0: As people who will stack games wherever they fit in our respective storage solutions, uh, I have to imagine that this is att- attempting to model some kind of person who is sufficiently obsessed with organizational schema that, you know, everything has to be in just the right place next respect to it. It's like, nah, I'll put it like a 1980s Avalon Hill design next to some piece of Kickstarter crap of a different size. You know, if it, if it fits in the shelf, it fits in the shelf. Yeah, all the all the
1: different initiative cards were sort of like, not I don't want to say phobias, but, you know, sort of like types of people.
0: Little compunctions?
1: Yeah, a little compunction of people. Yeah, it was kind of... It was
0: silly that way. Okay. Munchkin style, I guess. Board game, munchkin type game. Sure. So, moving out west and not having my game collection because I wasn't able to fit anything in my car, uh, well, except for a few games, I took advantage of a local no ship math trade and got some games on the cheap. And one game that I got very, very cheap, because it's not well-regarded is one of Andreas Stetting, he of Hansa Teutonica and Gugong fame. The other design of his that I haven't tried, which is to say the Stouffer Dynasty. And I have to assume that the Stouffer Dynasty it was originally a game themed about managing your inheritance of a frozen food empire, but uh, there, there was hardly a microwave me- meal to be found. Uh, something about some other king. I don't know. Maybe Stouffer means something else to other people. I, I find that difficult to believe. So the Stouffer Dynasty is an area majority game, and very much like you would expect from the designer of Hansa Teutonica, it's extremely simple in a number of ways on your turn you can do one of two things you can get more people or you can use your people to occupy an office on the map there you go those are your two choices to be had and of course then there are choices about what which way you want to get people back and what office you're going to occupy obviously i'm oversimplifying but the core action selection is incredibly simple and it dovetails with the initiative system for next round there's a number of clever interlocking bits again as you would expect from someone like Andreas Stetting and it's much more similar to the design aesthetic of Hansa Teutonica than it is to Gugong gugong although we're both we're both fans you more so than i gugong is nowhere near as clean as tight as integrated as Hansa Teutonica is stoffer dynasty is much cleaner in comparison I don't understand why the Stouffer Dynasty gets a lot of flack. A lot of people really don't seem to like the Stouffer Dynasty. I thought it was very nice as far as area-majority Euro games go. The simplicity, layer on top of the simplicity, is this system whereby you're going to have these chests, and these chests are these cardboard tokens that can be end game scoring, immediate scoring, immediate bonuses, or you save them to trigger some other power. Now... A lot of them end up being these you save them to trigger some power later and deciding when and how to use them ends up being a surprisingly salient element of the game. And I got a very pleasant sort of combo feeling off of it about how being in a situation of scarce resources, overcoming that scarcity through using these bonuses that I had acquired at great cost. Now, granted, they're all one shots there are the recurring special powers you get are these other things called privileges but you get them as well by caching in chests so a lot of it is about getting these chests and how they relate to your fundamental supply versus placement actions so you have surface level simplicity but a lot of trade-offs layered up on top of that and a whole bunch of different effects that people are going to be asking you about again and again there's there's a four-page supplement with all the information, of course, because it's a Euro game, so you need that reference for all that other special stuff. But I thought it was very tense. It's a a fascinating inversion on a number of standard area-majority concepts. Ever since El Grande, most of the time when you're playing area-majority, going last is advantageous because you know where everyone else is, and you can decide to just beat them by one placement. Well, in the Stouffer Dynasty, the placement areas are very limited. They're very circumscribed. You know, the province that scores at the end of the round might only have three places to go. And so going early is hugely advantageous because you need to get there before all the spaces are occupied. Now, there's tons of other things you can do. You can plan for future rounds. You can even exert your influence to try to make sure that the place that your opponents thought was going to score is not going to score and some other region is going to score instead, which is very... Very awesome, and I was able able to actually use in the case of my game. It scales very broadly. It, it goes from two to five. We played with three, which again is popular consensus on the internet is that Sofer Dynasty is not very good, and it's not at its best with three. But we played it with three. I played it with Huey and Louie, and we had a great time. It was it was a very very satisfying experience. So I have the physical game as well. I'm looking forward to trying it at higher player counts. I don't think it's nearly as good as Hansa Teutonica, but I mean almost nothing is. But as far as middleweight, accessible area majority games go, you can do a lot worse than the Stouffer Dynasty, which really makes me wonder. And this isn't even just average rating or ranking on BoardGameGeek. And this isn't so sloppy. These are people that I trust. These are people like Woogie Online who say that the Steifer Dynasty is no good, and you know wonder how anyone who designed Gugong and Hans Tone could, could design this. But I, again, I see the design similarities. I see the design influences. This feels like an Andreas Stedding design, and that by itself, is good praise. So I'm looking forward to future plays of the Stouffer Dynasty. And finally for me, I got to play One Deck Dungeon Forest of Shadows. I was kicking myself at having packed what games I brought because there were a number of small games that I wish I'd brought along, relatively small games like Legacy of Dragonhold, and immediately after hitting the road, kind of, you know, just rounding out Barry heading towards Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario I'm like why didn't I bring one deck dungeon one deck dungeon is an obvious no-brainer to bring and so I was able to get one deck dungeon forest of shadows for a song at this math grade and I knocked out a couple of quick games one deck dungeon is aggressively delightful and I the more I play it the more I really do appreciate how it captures that roguelite experience of just hoovering up massive quantities of bonuses about how you start at the bottom and you work your way all, all the way to the top. You, you're rolling twice as many dice as you were at the start of the game and you get seven skills that you can activate every fight. And it's still manageable. You don't lose track of all the stats that you're entitled to do, which is, a, which is an accomplishment in and of itself because it's not about, you know, plus one here, plus one there, plus three if it's a Tuesday, plus, plus five if it's raining. But instead, it's more a question of, well, I don't have the dice I need, but I can cash this die in for this other die. It becomes almost a resource conversion experience. And the One Deck Dungeon system, which started out with obviously One Deck Dungeon and then evolved into Force of Shadows, really shows the flexibility of the system because one of my criticisms of One Deck Dungeon was I didn't think that the range of modifiers and the range of skills were as dynamic and diverse as I would have liked. But it was the first game in the series, and Forest of Shadows really shows that Chris Cheslick as a designer is flexing his muscles in this design space. Because the skills and the modifiers and the potions really are getting more interesting, more textured, more nuanced. And there are going to be lots more games in this kind of arena. There's already a small mini-expansion for more characters in the One Deck Dungeon games because they're fully back-compatible. You can play the characters from One Deck Dungeon in the Forest of Shadows dungeons and vice versa and mix this, that, and the other thing. And I really appreciate the artwork. I love the cast of characters. And so I'm very, very glad to have in my collection of quick solo experiences, One Deck Dungeon, Forest of Shadows... Uh, again, Chris Chesek, the designer, is a personal friend of mine. Uh, but this is a copy that I acquired, actually the second copy that I acquired with my own money. So there you go. And those are the games that we played this week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right, Mark. Games Workshop is cracking down
1: again because now they have a new streaming service that's coming up. So any sort of Games Workshop content, you know, all those like uh, cartoons and see you, that you see on YouTube and all the rest of it.
0: What's this you disappear. you're talking about? The, the, the things that maybe you see on YouTube and stuff.
1: Oh, I'm not a big... I'm just... This is stuff I heard. I don't watch it either. They
0: made this movie where, like, this one guy with a bulldog kills, like, a thousand orcs. It's so cool. Yeah, daka duck, duck, daka baby. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, yes. should, I shouldn't be making... Some of these are my friends, and they're like, oh, this movie about this space marine was so amazing. I'm like, oh, I just find... Oh, I don't find fascism interesting. I'm sorry, I don't. <laughs>
1: So long story short, because Games Workshop is coming up with a streaming service, they are now telling all of these independent creators to take down their stuff. How unprecedented for Games Workshop. I know. I'm sure this is a new page for them. So Cryptid, Mark, is a game that I've only played once, but I sort of like that sort of puzzly thing from like... Uh, Deduction, Incognito. Just like Search for Planet X, Marks, where you, you're deducing things with some facts, so... Cryptid Urban Legends from Offspree's coming out soon. It's sort of like a Cthulhu-themed, and the fact that they're sort of trying to inject some sort of story and or theme to this sort of mechanism, I'm all in. I can't wait to give this a try. Mark, you don't mind waiting six or seven years for a game.
0: Mordypheus
1: <laughs> is at it again. They've already said they're going to be putting out Skyrim, so I'm sure that will be ready in about ten years. But another one that looks interesting... They're doing Spectre the board game. So Spectre, the villains from 007, you get to play as the villains and have your big master plan of villainy and thwart the spies and be the best villain you can be. Looks interesting. Are you a Bond like guy Walker. To try? A little bit. My father was a very big Bond guy, so you know, just by sort of inheritance, I've I've I'm always watched them when they come out and I do enjoy them.
0: So there's going to be a semi-sequel from the creators of Shassen. Shassen was a very interesting project out of India. Zain Memon and Abhishek Lamba are now announcing that they're going to have a follow-up called Azadi. And I mentioned this because Shassen was on audacious design. We liked a number of elements of it. You seem to like it more than I did. I, I, I didn't quite like how it came together as an area majority contest or as the basis for discussion. It was just too many pointillistic little political things that never really gelled. And sometimes the consequences were way out of left field. But Azadi is kind of their post-colonialist rejection of traditional colonial narratives. And this is definitely something that's, that's been brought to the mainstream of board game discussion. Again, it kind of comes in waves over the past five years and Azadi is a game where, step one, you throw off your colonialist oppressors, and then step two, you squabble amongst yourselves because it's still a competitive game. It's not cooperative. And I mention it in particular not just because I'm interested in more games, trying out more games from the subcontinent, but because the uh, Kickstarter teaser video, which is going to be on Kickstarter later in the summer, is incredibly crude, very audacious, and awesome. It is a marvelous middle finger to colonialism, and I encourage everyone to go check it out if you can. This is Azadi from the creators of Shasen.
1: I'm looking forward to that. Like I love the, the concept of of that game was amazing. It didn't, like you said, it did not pan out the way I wanted it to, but just the concept of it was very intriguing.
0: Absolutely, I'm glad I backed it. it. You know, it's one of those independent creators. I'm glad to be able to support independent creators, especially when they're voices from an underrepresented community in the broader board gaming mainstream. And it definitely had a lot of interesting ideas, and I'd much rather play an interesting failure than another workmanlike mediocrity.
1: So I love Deck Builders, Mark. I love nostalgia. We have G.I. Joe, the deck-building game, coming out by Renegade Games. I'm sure it should be a one of those thrill rides to uh, play a few times and laugh and and have a ball of fun.
0: You're more interested in the Can't G.I. Wait. Joe one than the Transformers one? Yes. Oh wow! Okay, the things you, th- you th- the things you think you know about somebody.
1: Uh so much more theme in GI Joe, so what? much more character. What are
0: you talking about? Some of them transform rolling. into planes, and some of them transform into Puke. cars. How much more character can oh, you oh, want? Oh, stop!
1: <laughs> Another thing that's very interesting is uh, Batman escaped from Arkham Asylum. So these uh, sort of escape room games in a box are becoming a little more popular. And now there's going to be a Batman Arkham Asylum themed one. This is coming out by night games. So I'm sort of interested in checking that out. I haven't played one of these escape room games in a box yet. So might be very interesting. And the last little bit of interesting news is there was, but now is no more a Pokemon themed wingspan (laughs) mod on tabletop simulator. Like how is that, you know, for a better theme than what it has like collecting Pokemon, feeding them the food they want, upgrading them, special combos. Apparently there was even a, like a little mini combat system. You know, when you uh I guess you didn't play Wingspan very much, but there's a tucking system where you tuck cards oh, behind yeah. I remember that. other birds. So instead of instead of just tucking them underneath there'd be like a little combat sort of quick little mini game that you would play so walker,
0: but walker there are only two good things about wingspan one of them is elizabeth hargrave and the other is the theme why would you want to take away the theme of wingspan
1: because pokemon mark
0: okay i, but I they feared i guess i can't re- reply to that they feared the nintendo
1: bat and therefore pulled it and now it is no more i guess that's that maybe if enough of us speak up <laughs> Maybe one day you'll see it again.
0: This, this is going to be your cause. This is what's going to prompt you into political That's action. Right. That's right. <laughs> just get the petitions going. Good luck with that, must Walker. must have
1: the return. Got to have principles. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. And now on to our feature game of the week, which is Tribune, which first dibu- debuted, Tribune debuted from Fantasy Flight Games, but now has just been received from the Kickstarter backers Mark what place this in our timeline
0: Well it was originally published in 2007 by Heidelberger, and it was distributed in English by Fantasy Flight an expansion Tribune de Brutii uh, followed in 2008 This is by designer Karl-Heinz Schmiel Karl-Heinz Schmiel is perhaps best known for Die Macher the seminal German politics game which was originally published in 1986 but which was also reprinted in a substantially changed form by Spielworks in 2019 He's also known for Washtick, which is my favorite trick-taking game, published in 93 and then reprinted in Mu and Lots More in 2007, as well as the bizarre dexterity game A la Carte, originally published in 89 and distributed in English in 2010. So there's been a long tradition of reprinting Karlheinz Schmiel games, sometimes with substantial alter- alteration. Spielworks, who has reprinted both. Die and Tribune under the Kala line, which is Karl-Heinz Schmiel's nickname, I am told. They plan on following up with Lieber Bayerisch Sterben, which is a weird sort of quasi-historical, quasi-Euro, quasi-war game, and they plan on doing that sometime either this year or next. Uh, So, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Tribune? Well, in Tribune, it's a little bit
1: like Imperial 2030, where you're 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 acquiring stick with me here mark you're acquiring these factions but you're not really controlling them and you really don't want to worry about controlling them you want to get control get what you need out of them and then just let them go and not worry about it anymore move on you have to make sure you don't focus too much on the game ending conditions because they're just going to come to you naturally as you quest for points and then and then The game, the end of the game is mostly out of your hands. Usually you can't really control when the end of the game is going to happen. Sometimes you can. So just make sure you're always out ahead in points because the game is over before you know it. That is Tribune.
0: Wow. Clearly we have very different experiences of Tribune, at least as far as the victory conditions are concerned. So let's start there. One of the things that separates Tribune from other worker placement games because they're a dime a dozen, of course, and they have been for quite some time, is that rather than amassing points, at least in theory, maybe Walker will disagree with me, at the start of the game, you select a victory card, and it's going to tell you, in order to win the game, you need to get X of the following Y conditions, such as becoming the Eponymous Tribune, having some, uh, some favor of the gods having some number of legions, having some number of worlds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And some of those you can ignore because you don't need to get all of them. Some of them you decide to push for. And once someone has met the requisite number, the game ends and whoever satisfied the most victory conditions wins. The only time you ever look at points is when there's a tiebreaker. And I'm inferring from your comments that you find the tiebreaker to be a borderline inevitability. Usually is. By
1: the time the end of the game comes, everyone's usually hitting the five victory conditions
0: well the, case depending sometimes it's five sometimes case something else. that true, true, huh, true, true it's weird that has not been my experience either with the base game or the base game with the expansion or this new version uh published by spielworks so actually over the course of this discussion there might be some degree of confusion uh so <laughs> there was tribune primus inter Paris, that was the original version there's the broody expansion which is the base game expanded and then there's just tribune simpliciter the one published by Spielworks. I will be jumping between the three of these a lot. My apologies. Uh, But (laughs) Tribune's been my favorite worker placement game for quite some time, and I have very serious views about the differences between the three different ways to play at this point. So let's talk about the basic
1: mechanisms of Tribune, Mark. What you're doing is you're trying to acquire these cards, and there's all sorts of different ways... I don't want to say mini games, but just interesting different ways to acquire money and these cards in which you're going to be using to take control of these different factions. And so there's like just straight up buying them or entering these little mini auctions or buying from a pool. And it's got that interesting mechanism where uh, these things are done in a certain order. So you can acquire cards that you don't really need to use them later on in the same action rotation to pay for other cards. So it's sort of like, you know, I'll get these for that, and then later on down the line I'll use these cards to pay while keeping the other cards in my hands that I need.
0: I have in the past complained that sometimes worker placement games use worker placement as a lazy way to distribute resources, and sometimes even those resources aren't particularly interesting. Like Just to pick on one as an example, after the Empire, we found the overwhelming majority of the time we were just getting wood and then getting stone, and then Throwing wood and stone into our castles, wash, rinse, repeat. In Tribune, conversely, what you're doing most of the time is acquiring these cards, which you then collect into sets to use to take control of these factions. Much of the time, you're using these sets to take control of a faction from somebody else. And as a result, every time you send out a worker to reserve the right to purchase a card, this can be a public declaration that you're coming for someone else's stake. Sometimes they don't care. As you, as you identified, sometimes it's very much about this is a transactional nature. I've gotten what I've needed out of the gladiators or the legates or the, or the plebs or whatever. But sometimes this is a direct threat to the, a person's plan for the rest of the turn that they needed that faction for at least one more round, maybe a couple more rounds to get something specific done. And this is one of the many, many, many ways in which Tribune differentiates itself from its peers because the amount of player interaction and open competition is much, much higher in this design than almost any other worker placement game that I've played.
1: And I like how it's, it's not predetermined, but there's not much that's going to stop you from taking over something if you've already arranged its type thing. It's nice, s- straightforward, and easy. There's no back and forth. There's no way to defend, because that's a very interesting part of Tribune as well. Because once you've taken over a faction then there's no way for you to increase your stake in it. It just sits there and waits for someone to take it over, either A, by placing cards that exceed your number, or just play more cards than you have.
0: Yes, the only way you can defend yourself is by spending the opportunity cost to either win an auction which can protect one faction for a round, or, and this is more expensive, but I've seen it done and it's very viable, Go and snatch up those cards that the other players need to take it over. Because, as you identified, there are other uses for cards than just taking over factions. They're usually not as good. So, again, it's expensive. But if you desperately need that faction, well, sometimes that's that's what you got to do. And so you end up in these situations where flexibility is mandated. You're sitting there. You've got a plan for the turn, you figure. I've got all my ducks in a row. And then someone places a worker to go take that card. And you figure, oh, that means they're coming for me. Crap well, I guess I'm spending half of my turn defending my flank so I can get at least some of what I want to get done. And it's those kinds of trade-offs that I really, I find, make Tribune a very tense experience, and again, far more interactive than a lot of other games of its ilk.
1: Yeah, I don't want to gloss over that chariot mechanism that you sort of hinted at, the fact that at the end of the round, everyone blind bids for this chariot, and you place it over a faction, and they cannot be taken over for the next round. But not only can you protect yourself, you can look over and say, well... Um, let's say Chip the Three can't afford the chariot and you know that they have the faction that Huey needs. Yep. So I'm just going to buy out the chariot and protect Chip the Third's faction and stop him from getting what he needs. Like It's a very interesting you know, mechanism of
0: the game. Or even just set it off to the side of the board and make sure that all factions are in fair play because uh, transaction that's required. I report with some sadness that that particular gambit is no longer a legal option for you. In the reprint. In the reprint, you can only protect your own factions, not anyone uh, not anyone else's faction. Boo. I agree with you. This is one area where the reprint Tribune Simpliciter is vastly preferable. In Primus Inter Paris, turn order, a start player would just rotate clockwise. In Tribune, the new one, whoever wins that auction becomes the start player for the next round which is vastly better. And I'm going to be playing that way going forward forever. It's a simple change. It's an obvious change, but turn order is a frequent bugbear in Euros. Tribune Primus Inter Paris had that on occasion. And I'm very glad that they at least did something to zhuzh up the turn order. It's
1: true. I did have that in here because a lot of what a lot of what worker placements do is that they make a place on the board where you have to waste your time and waste a worker and go there and take the first player. And it sort of just is one of these things where it's like, okay, enough is enough of the same person having first player over and over again. And I, and I was going to comment on how I like how
0: it rotated around the board, but this new method is even better. Well, and again, in Tribune, I personally find there are no useless placements frequently in worker placement games, whether I have a lot of workers or even sometimes when I have a few workers, I get the two things that I really want done. And then I've got some workers left and I say, Oh, what do I do with this person? Uh, well, I guess I'll just go get some extra marginal resources. Although I have no idea what I'm going to do with them. I do not have that experience in Tribune. I know that I can go and get this card for some specific purpose. I can go and turn in these excess cards for some spare laurels. I I never feel like my, any of my actions are wasted. I'm not always directly competing with everybody else for placement, but I never feel like I'm sending a worker off to do something random just because. Yeah, no, you're either, like you said, you're either getting more victory points or you're slowing down your
1: opponents or you're protecting yourself or or and it's got that holding out where you're even you order your things because you want to wait to the very end because of that, there's that auction where you can get in at the last minute. And if no one else goes then you get, you get the cards for two of the cards for only a dollar or you get into Mars and no one else is there and you get two victory points. And in uh, a game that usually rounds out about 40, I don't know what the new Tribune rounds out at, but our games were around 40 victory points, two or three victory points is a huge, you know, swing.
0: Absolutely. But in terms of what you're actually going for, and again, I, this, this is supposed to be a, just a difference of opinion between the two of us, one of the things that I appreciate about Tribune is that rather than just engaged in constant resource conversion, and again, this is true this is of even the best ones. You know, I, I, I love Agricola, but you know, you're still throwing ro- uh, wood and rock and reed into some conversion matrix somewhere to get points on the other side. In Tribune, you're meeting thresholds. And by and large, and this is one of the areas that confuses people, because you had some questions about this as well, Huey did as well, there, many of the resources, I would argue to say most of the important resources, you get them, and then you move on. There's n- You don't double up on them. So Tribune, Favor of the Gods, Faction Markers, uh, Liberating Slaves, Favor the Emperor, you get them once, and then you move on. You can't get them more than once. It would be really nice if the if the rulebook said that. That's true. You know, it would true. be very nice <laughs> if the rulebook just said... You may
1: only have one of these markers, or you can only get it once, or if you have one, you can't get another one. If it said any of those things, that would be very helpful.
0: You're absolutely right. It's true. That has been a bugbear since the beginning. Ever since it was published, people have had those questions, and that is another missed opportunity in the reprint. They could have made it a little bit more clear. Uh, the way I explain it to people, essentially, is that other than laurels and money, you laurels, money, and cards, you basically never lose anything, and you can never double up on anything. Anything you get, you have forever, and anything you get, you can't get more than once. And that tends to clarify things.
1: The the temporary favor of the gods, you can lose.
0: No, you're right. Okay, sorry, you're right. Not quite as simple a formalism, but you... yeah, Yeah, and in the new version, you can't even stack different favors of the gods it is novel, though, and that, one of the reasons why people find it difficult to grok is that it is somewhat novel in the Eurosphere. Most of the time in the Eurosphere, you're just piling up as many resources until they get to the ceiling, as opposed to, I've made this the singular achievement, I've done this difficult thing, Tribune especially, you really need to eat your Wheaties in order to get Tribune, and then you can move on.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the factions as well, the fact that when you take them over, there's a bonus that you get, the takeover bonus, and then another phase of the game, there's the the faction bonus there's yet something else that they can do. And there's a a very large decision space there on some of them where some of them have an, or it's get some more cards or get this. And sometimes it's, it's, it takes a little bit of thought. You got to figure out, am I going to hold on to this faction for another turn? Should I get this scroll now? Or should I get those cards now? And, And I think it, they did a great, a great, you know, balance
0: there. I agree entirely. And I think it relates a lot again to, to the eponymous tribune condition. And sometimes in the base game, there are some versions of the game where becoming Tribune is mandatory. There are some uh, there are some victory cards where you just get any number off a list, and there's some victory cards where you must satisfy a particular victory condition, and then the other ones are optional. And Tribune is the biggest one, in part because it is a multi-step process whereby first you need to scroll, and that can be difficult, and then you need to control two specific factions in order to get it. And getting it feels like an achievement, and when someone's able to pull it off, it's like one of those great moves where everyone sits up and takes notice and offers congratulations. And So having those little moments of triumph and drama in a Euro are often nice.
1: And then each faction also has a leader that you can play. It's like a value zero card, and getting those on the table is, is pretty interesting.
0: Yes. Should I mention the swag house rule? Yes, swag house rule for leaders. You cannot start a game with a leader in your hand. We've been playing this way ever since the beginning because many of the leaders, especially at the start of the game, provide you with tremendous bonuses that are more unfair just by having them off the top of the deck. So at the start of the game, you get six cards, keep four. If one of them is a leader, just discard it, draw a replacement uh, and choose from them instead. I've been playing that way for many years and I vastly prefer it.
1: So since we're just talking about the rules, I really think it's an easy teach. Because like I said, the only difficult part of the game is sort of the the taking over the factions back and forth, and it's very easy. Like either play cards that are of higher value or just play more cards. The rest of it is just, you know, place your worker, get the cards, and I think it's a great back and forth. It flows very quickly. And like I said, sometimes can be over before you know it.
0: Yes, very much like Senji, uh, which is another hero that I really like. You know, you explain the rules and people seem to mentally buckle down for like a two hour, a 90 minute to one, uh, 120 minute game. Or in the case of Senji, they expect it to be, you know, like three hours or so. But you have to stress to people, look, this is probably going to be three to five rounds long. In some of the more in, in some of the more basic victory conditions, even the longer versions, maybe five to seven rounds, not that long, really all told. And it takes a while, a little bit of experience, to understand how quickly things can go. Especially since when you're playing with these victory conditions, you know you're you're going for four, five, six victory conditions. Everyone's at zero. Everyone's at zero. Somebody gets their first one, and then suddenly everyone's got three to four because they tend to come in a rush uh, as you're building up these things. But you said something interesting there. You, you said about you said about the teach. Can we segue to talk a little bit about the expansion? Yes, let's talk about the expansion. How easy did you find it to teach the game with the expansion?
1: Very easy. Just took a quick, brief, brief through the rule. You know, well, because we've already played, we played the base game, sure, and then the very next game we played with the expansion. It's like, oh, here's a few more, you know, places that you can go. It, it was a bit fiddly with the, the 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 turn structure because it, yes, you know, put. Put the the faction uh, battle in between, and then you resolve the, did the. Is that still in the the new game? Yes, it is. And I'm so disappointed. Well, there must be. I'd have to. I have to. I would have to just sit and look at it. You know, with that understanding, and think why they wanted to do that. There must be a reason why they wanted to do that particular way. But in I the expansion, there's a. There is another faction which you can trade in the cards to get uh, some victory points or some more armies or uh, a victory condition as well. There are uh, player powers that you'll have for the the entire game unless someone takes them from you. Sort of like Kalis 1303 where you have these very interesting powers and you just sort of get to keep them until someone takes that action and just says, no, I think you don't need that power anymore. I'll take that from you now. Then it has the, uh, the Super Emperor Tribune token. And it's sort of, you know, I have the most of something, like you flip over the tile, it's going to be a different one every turn, and you sort of flip over the tile, and it's like I either have the most of something, and I pay $12 or something something, and then you get yet another victory condition that's worth five victory points. So all sorts of different things that you can do.
0: Now the reason why I brought up the expansion and asked specifically about the rules explanation is... I have very seldom had the experience of teaching the expansion to people who are already familiar with the game. Because I agree with you, if you've already played the base game and you know it and you're comfortable with it, explaining the expansion is very, very simple. Explaining everything at once, though, is a bit of a bear, especially because, as you note, the rhythm is bizarre. Because you explain how all these fields work, you then explain how faction takeovers work, you then explain faction bonuses, and then you say, okay, by the way, here are some more fields on the back end at the end of the round that work just like those fields before. It's a surprisingly difficult lift. And honestly, it's just a few fields too many, a few more work, a few too many worker placement fields, and it gets a little bit tricky. And the reason why I stress this is because in the reprint, you must play with the expansion. It's not an expansion anymore. Everything is integrated. It is non-optional. There is no ability to play with just the base game anymore. I can kind of understand why that's the case, because the expansion does let you get rid of a couple of the victory conditions that were unsatisfying. One of them was money, which... Very frequently in a game of Tribune Primus Inter Paris, the way the game would end would be someone would get N-1 victory conditions and then pile into the money section and then get the money they needed for that last victory condition. So money was a relatively bad victory condition and the expansion obviates that. The other victory condition that's generally speaking unsatisfying is faction control tokens. But you get control of factions to get your other stuff anyway. So of all the other victory conditions, it just fell into your lap more, more often than not.
1: Which is too bad because teaching the game is a bit of a bear because there's so many different places to go with your workers. But in the end, it's just getting cards. And once you go through that first round where it's like, okay, Oh, here I pay for them here. I pay for them slightly different in here. You know, I just get them right. As soon as you go through a turn, you'll see how, how easy it is. But going through each space and like piling on all these different ways to get cards, it just seems like a lot right off the beginning for sure.
0: Absolutely. It's not. I, and again, just to contextualize things, it's not super daunting, it's just an order it's just a slight order of magnitude above, you know, your agricola, your terraforming mars, your standard middleweight euros. And having the option of playing with the base game or playing with the expansion was really nice. I could calibrate it to how long we had to play, how how much mental energy I thought that my audience had, how experienced they were with euro games, etc., etc. Having the option off the table I think is a bit of a misstep.
1: We really we touched on all the victory conditions, but the fact that they have all sorts of different cards that you get to pick at the beginning of the game where it's a different lineup of a bunch of different victory conditions. I thought that was great. They also have sort of like, I guess, a basic way you can play where it's only, like you said, faction tokens. Whoever gets to a certain number of faction tokens first wins. Oh, well, no, but that, that, that sets think...
0: the end game. It's it's certain number of faction tokens determines the end of the game, and Oh, and then it's just it's victory points. points. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Know, I, I've never played that way. I couldn't imagine wanting to because, again, more so than you, I really appreciate the alternate Victory conditions. It's also, again, to stress uh, a missed opportunity in the reprint. If you have the original 2007 base game with the 2008 expansion, if you play with the base game, you have six different possible victory configurations. If you then add in the expansion, you have two. But because the expansion is integrated in the reprint, that means you only have the two different options. There's only Sick Transit Glory on Monday and est Veritas. There's none of the other ones. Whereas in the base game, again, sometimes they relied on money, and sometimes they relied on those, fac- uh, those faction markers, which are not perfectly satisfying victory conditions. But you had ones with Tribune being mandatory, ones where... The money threshold was huge, one where the threshold of laurels was really low, or ones where the threshold of of, uh, legions was really high. I really appreciated that variety, and I can't help but feel that in this new package, despite the fact that there's all all the same stuff in it, and indeed more stuff, more on that later, uh, my horizons have been limited as a consequence, which is unfortunate.
1: And does the expansion have the assassino
0: cards? those are gone too the assassins are gone in the in in the the, the new version which uh, again is unfortunate because although it was another mechanism to kind of understand assassination still exists in the base game as a takeover bonus for the plebs and uh for the gladiators there's still assassination as a mechanism it's just the expansion gave you a card to trigger it but well, we did see where that could
1: lead to something like catastrophic there's a spot when you have the temporary favor of the gods you go to this one space, and then you just have to match the card that randomly turns up there, and you get to turn it into a permanent favor of the gods. And we could, we thought of how devastating that would be if you looked at it and said, oh, it's an assassin card,
0: and there's only three in the whole deck. I'm
1: screwed.
0: I... That's actually happened to me twice. <laughs> there you go. It shouldn't have happened that often, but it's happened before. No, I agree with you. Look, I'm not weeping over the absence of the Assassin cards. Uh, that is one of the changes in the the new version that I think is, is just perfectly fine.
1: And just to touch on it very quickly, what the Assassin cards and the Assassin ability it does, it just lets you kill one of the person card, one of the other person's cards in their faction line, so makes it easier for you to take
0: them over did you play with the broody eye
1: we did not does that in the new game
0: yes the broody eye are still the new game the broody eye were introduced in the expansion and they are basically a weird additional player that plays the game completely differently from everybody else they don't have workers the broody Eye instead have these cards and they can play three cards around and the way I would describe it is it's kind of like playing with uh, like some sort of shotgun. They're tremendously powerful, but they have scattered effects that are very, very difficult to control, and many of them uh, take the form of, okay, play this card, and you get to do all the things that nobody else took, or you get to play pretend as though you placed second in all these fields where anyone placed first. It's fascinating, as a game design challenge, I've played as the Broody Eye a number of times, I couldn't even begin to tell you whether I thought they were reasonably balanced, I've heard people swear up and down that they're the most powerful faction by far. I've heard people swear up and down that it's unwinnable. Honestly, despite my extensive experience with Tribune, I, and playing playing with the Broodii a fair number of times, I can't even begin to wrap my head around them. They're just really fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, if you play Tribune a lot, it's definitely a good way to mix it up. That's for sure.
0: And it also allows you to play with up to six players, which is nice. And just lastly, for me, it's just doubling down on
1: something we've sort of talked about, but just saying it a bit different. It's definitely a benefit for people who've played before. People that are coming in brand new might not get the temple right away. The fact that it ends quickly, the inner, inner workings of how all the factions work together and how it, it is a little bit fiddly, you know, the temporary favor of the gods turning into a permanent favor of the gods. This is a scroll. Now it's going to become Tribune, and but it still counts as a scroll and... All of the stuff, you know, which is comes to you quickly, but, you know, people that have played before will definitely, you know, know how the game flows a lot more quickly.
0: In my experience when showing it to new players, yes, there are those tricky little bits that they need explanations uh, several times to remind them. But usually when they see how quickly the game ends, they're intrigued and fascinated and want to play again rather than, oh, well, that was silly. Because sometimes, you know, with like Jade being a lie or like games being longer or shorter than you, they think they are. They smack of system mastery, like some sort of trick that, you know, you get your first play is a wash and doesn't really count because you don't understand what's going on because the systems are opaque or more complicated than they need to be. Whereas Tribune, I find, for new players most of the time, and it certainly was the case for me, it's immediately, transparently awesome enough that you're willing to accept these little idiosyncrasies. So, let me talk about the the reprint, shall I?
1: Let's talk about the reprint.
0: So Walker hasn't played with the reprint I have. I have to say overall, with respect to the reprint, I think it is a massive step back. Uh, I, If you have the option of getting the 2007 Heidelberger Distributed by Fantasy Flight game and the 2008 expansion, get that version. It is by far my preferred version. But the new 2021 Spielworks version is still an addition of my favorite worker placement game of all time. So it is definitely better than not having it. But if you have the the option of getting the earlier one, do that. So let me talk about some of my skimmings. First of all, visually. uh, The cards, in particular, are a huge step back visually. They're smaller. They wanted to keep the board smaller, fine, whatever. The board looks hideous when you first see it. But when it's all first set up, it's less bad than you might think. But still, overall, visually, I like the older version considerably more. I think the use of color, despite the fact that it's very dark, not brass dark but reasonably dark. The use of color is very good. Uh, So the new stuff, uh, there's a new Christian pseudo faction. There's the Christian community. It's a weird gameplay addition because it's a new faction that works kind of like a faction, but not like a faction. It's a new outlet for unused cards, which is kind of nice, but the game wasn't lacking from them before. But very often you just need to control them for one round. You've got a victory condition and then you just tip on out and don't care. And that is a little less interesting, but overall it's okay. There's a new Colosseum space, which is a strange little mini game where you're kind of playing a climbing game where people are forced to drop out. Uh, it's okay. It's whatever. It's just a little more rules grit. Mostly, what it does is it gives the Broody Eye a little more purchase into the game because if anybody shows up to the Colosseum, the Broody Eye automatically show up. So that part, at least, I appreciated. There are event carts. No, bad. And they're the standard kind of. In the first half of the game, they're fine. They just gradually open up new areas of the game. Like, now there's three spaces in the baths, not two. And now the Colosseum opens up, so now you get to play the strange little mini game that I explained at the beginning of the game, and now you're going to have to have me explain how it works again because you forgot in the intervening two rounds. Now the Christians are opened up again uh, because they start out unavailable. That's fine. In the second half of the game, though, things start to spiral a little bit out of control because they one of the events, just as an example, is suddenly all cards are twice as useful for taking over factions. Well, if you needed to take, keep control of one of your factions and that event card comes up, congratulations. You've just been punched in the face by a random event card at the top of a round. Which is exactly what you don't want to do, especially in Euros like that. So the chaos is, the introduction of Chaos is flatly bad, I think. The new turn order rule is great. And I'm going to be integrating it going forward. Uh, and This is a minor note. There's no more historical notes. In the, in the original version, the Heidelberg version, there are these lovely little historical notes. What's a tribune? What were the Vestal Virgins? What was the role of the Thermae in in Roman politics? Nope. All that's gone. Gone. Uh, finally, though, just as a, as a broader discussion, Walker and I mentioned in the past that in the expansion what you have are slaves. So there's the addition of enslaved people. And obviously, this is a huge deal for uh, people who are playing games and representations of slavery should never be taken lightly. Uh, mostly in both games it's about manumission. Mostly the slaves exist so that you can liberate them, and that's one of the victory conditions. So, And this was not uncommon in Roman servitude. Yes, it was chattel slavery. I'm not defending Roman chattel slavery. Let me be very, 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 very clear. But there was a long tradition of liberating slaves while they were under your service, and... Uh, In the base game, though, in the original version, you could use them for various effects. You could trade in some German slaves for uh, a Legion. You could trade in some Greek slaves for Laurels. You can't do that anymore in the reprint. Instead... Uh, they are become more important as members of the Christian community. Slaves in the Christian community grant you faster access to the Christian-related victory conditions. And so all told, I think the representation of slavery is slightly better in that you're never tempted to use slaves as slaves. They are exclusively present for you as a player to try to better their lives. So that's something, I guess, I completely understand if people are not comfortable playing any game in which chattel slavery is represented, that's cool, that's your prerogative, so keep in mind that that exists, but that is the way that it is handled in the context of the game. So all in all, to sum up, and I apologize for for the the, the, the digression, but I have many feels about this, I find the new version less flexible, less visually appealing, less historically inflected, and all told, visually less satisfying. The one area where it is superior, and I'll grant it this, is that since the expansion is now fully integrated, you're never going to forget about the expansion board. Because it's all just one board now. You just follow it like a spreadsheet. And you're never going to forget about the thing off to the side. So I,
1: I'm looking at it, Mark. I see why, why it is ugly. It's ugly because it's language independent,
0: right? That too, yes.
1: So that's why the cards aren't so pretty is because there's no more, you know, they don't have the special abilities on them all, it's all it's all symbology
0: now, no
1: English, all Latin all the time.
0: Well, but the expansion cards were also language independent though. If 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 you recall, the base game yep. was language dependent, but the expansion they made it language independent and all the cards had the necessary symbology. So we have a template for more graphically appealing, while still language independent, but I agree with you that that is part of why the Spielworks version is attempting to be more functional, less with less visual flair.
1: It's very spreadsheety looking, right? Very 100 basic, bland colors for sure.
0: As I said, it looks better once the game is set up. I wouldn't call it attractive, and I certainly prefer the original version. But it's not as bad as it seems from the screenshots once the game is actually set up and you're playing it. That and there's no chariot anymore. You don't have a cardboard chariot. You have a wooden helmet. I know, and I'm sorry. Boo. (laughs) Boo, sir. I I agree. But to to sum up for me, to, to sort of encapsulate the review once again... If the only one you can get access to is the Spielworks version, I highly recommend this. Tribune has my highest possible recommendation. I think it is the best work of an incredibly talented euro designer. I'm a big fan of Karl-Heinz Schmiel. I love worker placement games. Tribune for me is one of the most engaging, one of the most player interactive, one of the most satisfying euro games and certainly one of the mo- uh, certainly the most satisfying worker placement game that I have ever played. I prefer the 2007-2008 version, all told, but if this is the one you can get, I absolutely recommend you try it. So, if
1: you have a giant ring crest on your finger, then Tribune is the game for you. That being said, if you're looking for something completely different in the worker placement field, something that is old, but still has stood up its test of time, constantly on the verge, you know, like, because the victory conditions, like, people ending the game quickly there's this constant threat of the game ending so you're like looking to see what everyone has and you're making sure because every action counts
0: on the edge of your seat fantastic
1: game tribune
0: well that does it for this week thank you very much for joining us for so very wrong about games if you'd like to get in touch with us you can reach walker via his email just rolled at isatchemail.com you can reach me mark bigney on twitter at the games you like For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Biggin. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. We thank you, listeners, once again. For Spike Presents Masterpiece Theater we today in honor of Prospero Hall and the Reverend Dr. Dr. Baron of Diesel, OBE Esquire. We are discussing Fast and Furious 7. Walker, your comments, your thoughts, your feelings.
1: Mark, many people were crushed by a tank. Many deaths happened. But all was good because the young lady was rescued and unfortunately she lost her memory, didn't remember anything. And then she says at the very beginning of the movie, peace out. I, I'm, I I know a lot of people died, but I, I got to go now. I'm sorry. I,
0: I was very sympathetic. because, like, you guys are freaks and weirdos, and you keep talking about stuff I don't remember. Bye.
1: Nothing like, you know, disregarding the entire previous movie at the beginning of the new movie.
0: Well, I have but two thoughts. Uh, first of all, while the previous movies could hardly have been called progressive works, the seventh installment makes them look downright feminist in comparison butts are used for establishing shots enough to make me wonder if a perineum was the cinematographer, and everything possible is done to keep almost all of the female cast away from action roles or any kind of agency whatsoever. That said, number two, I will confess, and this is entirely honest, the cynical hate watcher is not ashamed to admit that he did get actual feels watching the touching tribute to the departed Paul Walker. I'm I'm scared
1: for the future movies, Mark, because they keep stacking it higher and higher, and I'm I'm afraid about how high it's going to go. We have a job to do, Walker. We have to see this through the end.
0: Next week, number eight. Or is it number nine? Number eight. Number eight. Mustang update. No Mustangs at all, but like a billion different dodges. Unacceptable. Zero out of
1: ten. Unwatchable.
0: Thank you, listeners, very much. Once again, First Swike Presents Masque's Theater, join us next week when we will be discussing the fate of the furious. Did you see what they did there? Did you see what they... It's important that you saw what they did there. Yikes.